Good morning, everybody. We're having some audio <laughs> difficulty this morning. Um, so just hang in there and we'll try to uh, get it going as, as well as possible. Uh, our key scripture this morning comes from Mark chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up there. I'll be reading it here for you this morning. <clears throat> from Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever written. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway, and they untied it. Some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Mm. Expectations are a funny thing. I've done a lot of uh, marriage and premarital counseling in uh, my years of ministry. And I've used the same material for about the last probably 10 or 12 years uh, in these different situations. And one of the things that the material addresses in great depth as a matter of first importance is the idea of expectations. Um, And it asks a lot of questions about expectations. Do you know what you expect from one another? Do you know where those expectations come from and why they exist? Have you expressed those expectations clearly to your partner so that he or she can meet them? And the author spends so much time uh, talking about expectations because they know that in the marriage relationship, as in really kind of any relationship that we have in our lives, we all bring expectations into those relationships. You are my friend. I expect you to act a certain way. You are my wife, you, right there. I expect you to act a certain way. You are my children, I expect you. All these relationships, we have expectations for how people should act. Sometimes we understand those expectations and other times we don't. Often we don't express them, but we think that the other person should meet them anyway. And it becomes a test of how well do you know me and love me. Because if you know me and love me, then you will meet my expectations without me ever having had to have told you what those expectations are. It's kind of an unfair test. In this passage from Mark, Jesus was entering Jerusalem, the capital city for the people of God, on what would be, I can only imagine, the longest week of his life. You would not know it reading this passage. Because as Jesus entered the city on the back of a cult, fulfilling prophecy, the city seemed to have lit up with anticipation about what was coming. But the truth of the matter was that everyone who saw Jesus on that day had expectations for him. They had a specific lens that they were looking through when they saw this homeless teacher ride into the capital city on the back of this cult. 
The crowd was excited about maybe how Jesus could change things for them. Perhaps uh, he would come to overthrow Rome or to change the way that the have-nots and their society were treated. At the very least, he was a miraculous healer and an amazing teacher, so something good was going to happen by Jesus being there in town, and they came out to celebrate him on the road. Those who were the religious leaders at the time were looking at Jesus with a much more skeptical eye. They saw him as someone who was dangerous, and they understood that if Jesus stirred the people up against Rome, then they had a serious problem on their hands. The disciples believed that this was it, baby. Like they were finally going to see Jesus ascend to power, that he would take his rightful place, that this really was a victorious entry into the city of Jerusalem. And as he rose to a place of prominence, they would be right there with him. They were all wrong. Everyone was wrong. No one understood the true nature of Jesus or what he was doing there. No one was anticipating what was actually to come. And when it did come, no one was ready for what they saw and experienced. As we journey into the last week in the life of Jesus, it is worth asking this question. As we head toward crucifixion and resurrection, what is it that we are paying attention to? What are our expectations of the one who is sitting on the back of this cult journeying toward death and new life? Do we see him as he is? Are we hearing the things that he is telling to us about where he is going and where we must go? Do we hear his words and match his call with, the, with our lives or are we distracted by all that we want him to be about all that we want him to do for us about all that we hope will happen? For Jesus is riding into the city. The week is going to happen. There will be death and there will be resurrection. Are we going there with him? We are taking a a short break from our series, The Story, this morning uh, to focus on a different part of the narrative than we've been in. Uh, And so this week, or this morning, we're going to talk about the last week of Jesus. And uh, just just so you know, it's, it's sort of funny, you know, when these big marquee events come up for, um, for the Christian calendar, when you have Easter, when you have Christmas, there's always different resources I, I read. And so I, I want you to know that this, for this morning, there actually is a book called The Last Week. And um, I think I've mentioned it to you uh, in past years, uh, but it's, it's the book that um, I, I always read coming into um, this particular Sunday. And so it is the one that has, that has helped me form a lot of different ideas um, about this week. And so we're taking a break. And when you think about the last week of Jesus' life, there are a lot of uh, pretty marquee events that happen uh, in, in that space and time. Uh, so as we've already talked about this morning, Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem um, with great pomp and circumstance, there's a, whoa, hey, okay, <laughs> run, run, run's back there, run's got it. 
uh, there's a lot of pomp and circumstance. There's a parade. He comes in on the back of the colt of a donkey. There's, you know, clothing being thrown down, palm trees being thrown down, all the jackets and all that stuff, and people are riding in, and it's it's a big, big deal. Um, he, uh, you know, cleansed the temple and cursed a fig tree. He taught about the kingdom um, and his place in the kingdom and all that would happen and, and what God was going to do. Uh, he had the Last Supper with his followers. He prayed in the garden. He was betrayed, arrested, put on trial, beaten, crucified, and, and buried. And then, of course, he rose again. Um, but there is something about this story that I know so well and that many of you know so, so well also that is a little bit of a mystery to me. Um, so, and, and here's what it is. When you read the account of Palm Sunday, when you read the account of the triumphal entry, the town itself, the crowd, seems to be so enthusiastic about Jesus when he entered the city. But then, when Friday rolls around, it seems like everybody hates his guts. And Christianity over time has certainly painted the Jews, in quotes, the Jews, as, um, as a hostile, hateful, murderous group. And you see this reflected uh, in the Gospels in, in particular because when the Gospels were written, the new Christians were fighting against one group of people in particular. Do you know who that was? It was the Jews. And the Jews were persecuting them and, and, and taking them to task. And so when the Gospels were written, this was something that was happening in the world. Uh, Judaism was standing against Christianity. Now, we'll get into all that was going on during the week, but here is the real curiosity. Number one, how did they get from point A to point B? From supposedly being so much on Jesus' side to all of a sudden being totally against him. But the, the second thing that I don't understand is if the Jewish crowd was so against Jesus by Friday, then why was it necessary for the religious leaders to show up in the middle of the night in a garden outside of town with one of Jesus' followers to point out who Jesus is so that they could arrest him. It kind of seems unnecessary, doesn't it? I mean, if I've understood this story correctly all along, why does it even have to happen that way? And I'm not the only person to think this. Do you know who else thought this? Jesus. <laughs> Jesus thought this. From Mark chapter 14, verses 48 through 49. When they came to uh, arrest him, here's what Jesus says. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me, but the scripture must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. This passage makes me laugh a little bit because Jesus is there in the darkness of the garden He's got his disciples with him, one of which we know is armed. But he doesn't have an army. And here come these people to arrest him. And it's this huge group. They've got, um, you know, torches and they've got clubs. It's like he's Frankenstein, right? And the pitchforks, you know, they've got it all. As they come out to arrest Jesus. And Jesus looks at them and what does he basically say? Why? Like, why this? Why do you, I've been here all week. 
You've seen me everywhere. So why are you coming like an army in the middle of the night outside of town to arrest me? So Jesus does seem to give an answer, but it's, to me at least it's a little bit of an unsatisfying answer. What does Jesus say is the reason? So that scripture can be fulfilled. All right? But that doesn't really satisfy me. I, it doesn't answer the question of why do they come in the middle of the night outside of town when no one else would know, when it doesn't seem like maybe they had to. So why wait for that moment and those circumstances? Now, on the surface, that probably seems like a really trivial question that doesn't really matter at all. Wayne's nodding, so he agrees with me. Yes, Bryce, this is trivial. How much longer are you going to talk about this? <laughs> the answer is, as long as I want to, Wayne. <laughs> what we need to do, I think, in order to understand what actually is something pretty important, is we need to look back not just to the week of Jesus, but what led up to Jesus coming into Jerusalem. And uh, as Mark lays it out, there is sort of this journey, a literal journey that's happening, where Jesus and disciples are traveling to Jerusalem. They are, they are heading there. And while they are on the road to Jerusalem, Jesus wants to teach them things. He wants to, to tell them things to help them prepare uh, for what was to come, what was to come, and it's really clear in the book of Mark, in particular, that Jesus knows everything about what's going to happen. Uh, not all the gospels lay it out quite that way. Um, not that Jesus doesn't know, but he doesn't describe ahead of time always in such great detail. But in the book of Mark, he knew exactly what was coming. And he wanted his disciples to understand what was coming as well. And so, as they're on the way, there are three different prophecies that Jesus tries to teach his disciples so that they can be better prepared for what's going to happen when they hit the city of Jerusalem. The first comes from Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 31. He, being Jesus, then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and three days and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns." Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Okay. There is a lot that happens here. But let's first of all clear up some roles. Who is the leader of this group? Jesus is the leader of this group. And who is he surrounded by? His disciples, his followers. And what is the job of the disciple or the follower? 
to listen, to learn, and to follow. To go where Jesus goes, to do as he does, to listen to his words, and to follow his direction. So Jesus, in as plain of terms as possible, explains to them that this is what is going to come. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and then he must be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus, the teacher, tells them this. Peter says what? Jesus, would you come here for a second? Have you listened to yourself? Did you hear what you just said? You could not be more wrong about what's going to happen. You've got this confused, Jesus. We make a lot of mistakes in our lives. There are a lot of times we speak our opinions when they should not be spoken. There are times that we say thoughtless and careless things. However, I want to give you a free tip. If you take nothing with you this morning, take this. If you are ever in conversation with Jesus, and Jesus tells you that something is going to happen, do not tell him he is wrong. (laughs) That's free to all of you this morning. You don't have to pay for that one. He takes him aside and he rebukes him. He puts him in his place is the effort that Peter is trying to make here. You have got this wrong. Jesus decides to rebuke him in turn. Now Jesus' rebuke is much more difficult, I think, than the rebuke that Peter gave. Peter probably had a, oh, bless your heart kind of tone to him. But Jesus says, what? Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human conditions. And then he calls everyone into conversation. And he explains to them something. He says, this is where I am going to go. And if you are going to be my disciple, what must you do? You must take up your cross, as he said he is going to, and follow him. Now, in all fairness, in all fairness, this is a difficult concept that even we who know about the cross and the resurrection struggle with. So the disciples who believe that they're heading to something completely different don't really have a good lens through which to understand this. They don't really get that Jesus is going to the cross. And they certainly don't know what the cross means because it doesn't mean the same thing to them as it does to us. They are not on the other side of the resurrection. They do not understand his death. So we need to give them a little bit of credit here because it is a difficult concept. But for the disciples who go so far as to tell Jesus that he was wrong about needing to die, the concept that he was talking about was seemingly nearly impossible for them to understand because they don't think that Jesus is going to have to go to die, therefore they don't understand why they would have to go to die. Jesus is going to be victorious. Therefore, they will go to be victorious. But listen to what he says. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me, for, where am I? And for the gospel will save it. 
What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in the Father's glory. So he lays out this idea that they have to go to the cross and then he elaborates on it by talking about life and death. If you want to live life with me, you must do what? Lose your life. And when you lose your life, you will find life with me. And if you don't like this message, fine. If you're ashamed of what I have to say, then the Son of Man will be ashamed of you. Now, I've been put in my place a few times. None of it has been as thorough as this. Or well explained. There is no way to walk away from this conversation without understanding that something serious is coming, that it's not what I thought, and that at the very least, it's a matter of life and death. Literal life and death. And that I'm going to have a difficult choice ahead of me if I'm going to follow this Jesus to where he goes. Turn over to Mark chapter 9. They continue on their journey to Jerusalem, and so Jesus tries to teach them again, starting in verse 30 of Mark chapter 9. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were, because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But... They did not understand what he meant, and rightfully so, were afraid to ask him about it. They did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? So he tells them this. They're afraid to ask him about it, but they're having this side conversation. But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Okay, so he's told them this once, but he tells them again. In almost the same words, here's what's going to happen. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. This should ring a bell. But there's a problem, which is what? They don't understand. But because they were told off last time, they don't want to ask about it. So instead, what do they do? They ignore it and start talking about who's going to be the greatest when this whole thing rises. So Jesus gets them into the house and he wants to expand on this. Again, he's already talked to them about having to lose their life to find their life. And so he sits down to them and he says, look, here's the deal. If you want to be the greatest in the kingdom, then you must be the least. If you want to be the leader, you must serve. Now, is Jesus going to do this? Yes. He is going to be the lead. He's going to humble himself in front of everyone. He is going to serve. He is going to heal. He is going to teach. He's going to wash these people's feet before he goes to die. 
But it's troubling to me where the disciples are mentally. Because it's one thing to not get it, but it's another thing then to argue about something that's completely the opposite of what Jesus is trying to tell you. I always tell people in different counseling sessions, there's a big difference between ignorance and stupidity. It's okay to be ignorant. Do you know what ignorance means? You don't know. That's literally what it means. Therefore, when you are given information, you now know whatever it is you didn't know before. But guess what? If you don't do it, guess what that makes you? Stupid. Because you have taken the information that was supposed to inform you, and you are not listening to it. Which means there's a problem with you. Not with the lack of information. And it seems to me that they cannot move out of this realm. They have heard what Jesus had to say before they were ignorant. They didn't have the information. But once given the information, they don't understand the information, nor do they want to understand the information. They insist on seeing things as they want them to be, which means they are stupid in this moment about this thing. Mark chapter 10. There's a third moment on the way. Starting in verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. I imagine there's a sigh here. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. So Jesus again tells them explicitly, this is what is going to happen. How do the disciples respond? Well, it's followed up by a conversation with James and John. And they take Jesus aside and they say, Jesus, when the kingdom comes, can one of us sit on your right and the other on your left? The disciples clearly didn't understand what was going on, but this is important. Um, not only do they not understand the details that Jesus has given to them, because he's told them now who's going to do what, but they don't understand the reasoning behind all of this. They, they don't seem to get the bigger picture of what's going on. They don't understand that Jesus as, is a leader who actually will be the servant of all. They don't, they don't get the call to sacrifice and how Jesus himself is going to sacrifice. They, they don't understand the whole death and resurrection, giving up a new life part of the plan. And it's not by accident, and I find this fascinating. I didn't come up with this, but... I find this fascinating. These stories are bookended by, there's a story in the front and the story in the back. The first story is the story of the healing of a blind man in Bethsaida. The story at the end is the story of the healing of blind Bartimaeus. So get this. On either end of the disciples not understanding anything, what does Jesus do? He gives people their sight. And yet, these people who are with him all the time, what can he not make them do? See. Isn't that fascinating? It's, it's so interesting to me. 
And so the question that comes to mind if we're reading this as a story, which we've been practicing doing that, is will they be able to follow Jesus down the path that he has laid for them? What are they going to do when they get to Jerusalem and all this stuff starts happening? And even if they don't have to physically die while in Jerusalem and face death and resurrection alongside Jesus, are they going to get the whole point of the thing? The whole point of what's going on? Because that's really more important, is that these people who know Jesus the best, that they understand what Jesus is about, and why he's doing what he's doing, and what it means. Jesus has called them to lead like a servant, to, to be like a slave, to be like a child. And that is, it is at this point that Mark's criticism of Peter, James, and John, and the twelve becomes the most apparent because they want to act like rulers. Who is going to be the greatest? Who will sit at your right and your left? And they want Jesus to act like a king. And because most of us know the rest of the story, we know that when Jesus followed the way of the cross, when he gets there, when he is arrested, when he is taken away, when he is put on trial, what did Mark say happened? Everyone deserted him and fled. Because even though they were told about what would happen, they could not handle the truth. You can't handle the truth. They couldn't handle it. They couldn't handle what was happening. And everything around them seemed to fall apart. And when they do finally get to Jerusalem, we see several dynamics play out. So we know the disciples, as they come in, they're expecting Jesus to come and be king. They're arguing about who's going to sit his right and his left. And then Jesus is brought in like a conquering hero. And they're thinking, yes, finally, this is it. We are rising up. So we already know that Jesus is heading to the cross, but the real problem that we have within Jerusalem, we have this group of people, right, that are welcoming in. How do they get here to the end and what's happening behind the scenes? The real problem as Jesus enters Jerusalem is between him and the religious leaders. Um, However, one of the real issues that dictates the specific events of the week, the last week of Jesus, is not really Jesus versus the religious leaders. The tension that we have is between the citizens of Jerusalem and the religious leaders. And Jesus becomes the catalyst for everything that's going on and everything that they see happening. Because here's the thing that maybe you don't know. Jerusalem, the people of the city of, the, of Jerusalem, were actually not all that against Jesus. And, and we see it here in these different statements. On Sunday, as you recall, Jesus' entry into, into Jerusalem was met with great enthusiasm. Again, verses 8 through 10 of Mark 11. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Are they excited about him? Yes. Do they understand who he is? Doesn't matter yet for them. They haven't been there the whole time necessarily. But they are excited about him coming. On Monday... Jesus went to the temple 
and cleanse the temple, but he had an equally strong impact with the people as he did on Sunday when he came into the city. From chapter 11, verses 15 through 18. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. So you have two groups of people. Right, And they are seeing Jesus very differently. On the one hand, there is a group that has welcomed him into the city that is amazed by what he is doing and saying, including cleansing the temple. And on the other hand, you have the religious leaders and what is their response to this? We need to kill him. We need to kill him. On Tuesday, that contrast between the Jewish authorities and the Jewish crowd is repeated three times. Um, first, after Jesus interrogated the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders concerning John the Baptist, they were unable to respond. This comes from Mark chapter 11, verses 27 through 33. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus... Oh, by the way, just to clarify that, he comes into Jerusalem, then they spend the night somewhere else. Then he comes into Jerusalem, they spend the night somewhere else. This is what's happening. Um, They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you the authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me, John, who came before Jesus to tell people about the one who was coming. They discussed among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people, for everyone held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. (laughs) Ha ha. (laughs) So understand this developing situation. The leaders are afraid because what do they see happening? They are losing control of the situation. They're losing control of the situation. And Jesus is winning people over and he's making it so that they can't even explain themselves in a way that they could start to win people back to their side. Next, Jesus tells the parable of the wicked tenants who murder the vineyard owner's son And the account says in in chapter 12, verse 12, when they realized that he had told this parable against them, they wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowd, so they left him and went away. Jesus, and and finally Jesus challenges the scribes on how the Messiah can be both David's son and David's Lord at the same time in chapter 12, verse 37. And this is what Mark says. The crowd hears his challenge about this And the crowd was listening to him with delight. They are thrilled about what is going on. So this tells us something interesting. 
Many of the citizens of Jerusalem were very much on the side of Jesus. They liked what he was doing. They liked what he was saying. They liked how he acted. They liked how he was putting people in their place. This was a source of delight for many people within Jerusalem. But the religious leaders are looking at this from a completely different point of view. I don't, and we need to understand this point of view. They were afraid. And they were afraid of Jesus. They were afraid of the crowd. We don't have to guess why. The book of John actually tells us why they were so afraid. From John chapter 11, verses 45 through 48. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. This was before all the things that we're reading about now. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here's the man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. So, Here's what we have to understand. There is a legitimate political problem on the table, which is this. Rome lets Israel exist, and he allows them to keep their religion and some of their social constructs. As long as they recognize that Caesar is king and they don't rock the boat. But the people are starting to say, that Jesus is the promised one. And they are starting to rally around him. And so the people who are sitting back watching this happen, who are involved in sort of the political, the political uh, uh, nature of things that are going on, they're sitting back and they're watching this happen and they're saying, if, if these people get too rowdy and, and if this crowd gets any bigger... Rome is going to look at this and they're going to say this is an army. And this person is going to lead them in revolt and Rome is going to smash us. We cannot allow this to happen. Otherwise, we will cease to be as we are. There is genuine fear and concern that something has to be done. But... At the same time, they know they cannot act because too many people are on Jesus' side. And if they just walked up and tried to arrest Jesus in public, what would happen? There would be a riot. And a riot is the last thing that they want. Which leads us to this. Mark chapter 14. If you have your Bibles, turn over there. It's where we're going to be for the rest of the morning. Now the Passover and the festival and unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. Okay, they know they want to take action. They know when they can't do it. So they need to figure out a different time. They can't arrest Jesus during the festival. And after it, as far as they know, he's going to be gone. So... They give up on this whole, we're going to confront him in public. Unless, of course, they can learn where he is apart from the crowd, arrest him apart from the crowd, and execute him before the crowd knows what is happening. Can they rush this through? Stealth is the last chance left, and they need someone to help them. Help is coming. 
But there is a story that happens first. Mark uh, chapter 14, starting in verse 3. In the middle of all of this, the crowd loves him, the religious leaders don't, his disciples don't understand what's going on. In the middle of all of this, we have this story. Which brings a level of contrast to everything we've seen that we may not have fully appreciated before. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. Pay attention now. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for what? My burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Have you ever appreciated that statement? Listen to that again. Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now, why? Why? Why will her action be included with the telling of the gospel? There is so much we do not know about her. There is so much we do not know. We don't know what her name is. We don't know who she is. Mark doesn't name her. But there are a few things that are very clear. And, and here's probably... One, what she did was a huge statement on her part that most did not understand. She poured out perfume that was worth a year's wages on the feet of Jesus. This is an extraordinary act. It's an extraordinary act. To use ointment worth a year's wages for this, again, homeless teacher was certainly kind, but on the other hand was extremely generous to the point of extravagance. To the average person, this act does not make sense. Even if you like Jesus, the act does not make sense. So everyone looks at what she does and they rebuke her. For what reason? She could have taken the money from this and done what? Taking care of the poor, which, let's be honest for a second, sounds like a Jesus thing to do. Take the resources and give them to the poor. So they think when they say this, that they are get, going to get the agreement of who? Jesus. Because certainly he will say, we should take... He's been telling them this all along. He's been doing this all along. 
We should take care of the poor. And so they rebuke her and put her in her place. We've seen this happen. For doing such a foolish thing. Again, can't you hear Jesus sigh for a second? And when he did speak up, he puts her actions into such sharp perspective for us. She has done what she could, says Jesus. She has anointed my body beforehand for its burial. Now, understand what Jesus is saying here. Because the motivation for this is the most important thing. Is she doing it because she likes Jesus? Oh, I'm sure she does like Jesus, but that's not why she's doing it. Is she anointing him because she's saying he is Lord? Well, I'm sure she believes he's Lord. But Jesus doesn't say that's why she's doing it. So all those ideas that were kind of like in the back of our head, this is why she's doing it, is because he's Jesus. No, she's doing it for one specific reason, which is what? He is going to die. And she wants to anoint him while she has the chance to do it. Which makes her unique in all of creation. It makes her unique in all of creation. He has told his disciples what is going to happen. Do they understand? No. He has told them time and time again in multiple ways. Those who are closest to him should understand what this is, but they don't. Because they still don't understand that Jesus is going to leave them. But she has heard the words of Jesus. We know that because she understands. She alone has understood. And she did not just believe in him as so many other people did. She heard him. What he had to say. She understood his message. His reason and his purpose. So many believed in Jesus, but it was the Jesus they wanted to believe in. And even when Jesus said, it's not going to be like that, they just kept pushing the Jesus that they wanted. And out of everyone, this one woman saw things clearly. So when she got the chance to approach Jesus on the last week of his life, she anoints him for burial. Think about this. When Peter rebuked Jesus and said that he was not going to have to do this, who did Jesus call Peter? Because he was not doing and did not understand the work of God. When this woman shows up and does something crazy that nobody understands, Jesus blesses her because what is she doing and on whose behalf is she doing it? She understands what God is doing. And she anoints Jesus for that moment. She is the only one who walks with him to the cross. As Borg and Crossan, the authors of the book the last week, as they say it, she is for Mark the first believer. She is for us the first Christian. And she believed from the word of Jesus before any discovery of an empty tomb. 
And Mark's message could not be any more clear, I think. She is the disciple you're supposed to be like. This unnamed woman who heard the words of Jesus and acted on them. And if you don't believe me, this epic statement of faith and understanding is followed immediately by these verses. Verses 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot, who is what? One of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money, so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Mark doesn't give us motivation for the actions of Judas because the motivation of Judas was not important to Mark. Instead, he points out one significant thing. The one who betrayed Jesus was one of the twelve. And he had decided to betray Jesus and hand him over to the chief priests. One of the twelve hands him over. Someone we don't even know the name of anoints him for burial. The twelve didn't listen. They didn't understand. They jockeyed for position. One of the twelve gave him up, and the rest were nowhere to be found when Jesus was arrested, put on trial, and killed. Some of the people of Jerusalem turned on him during that last week, caught up in the fervor of the trial and the spectacle of the crucifixion. Others had to have written him off. I guess I was wrong about what I thought about him. He can't be the promised one if he's dead. The chief priests believed they were finally putting an end to all the nonsense. His closest friends, their world was shattered and destroyed. But in the middle of all this mess, one woman believed. She listened, she understood, she anointed him, and she walked with him to his death. This week, we focus on the last week leading up to the crucifixion. What I would like for you to do this week is you can follow day by day with Jesus. You can follow him Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, leading up to the glorious Easter Sunday. But here's what troubles me about this whole discussion. It occurs to me that like everyone surrounding Jesus so long ago, I wonder if we I wonder if we're following the Jesus that is or if we're trying to follow the Jesus we want. While Jesus offers us the great love, grace and forgiveness of God, he also lays a challenge in front of us about what it means to follow him. Again from Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Church, we rejoice because we are heading to resurrection. Amen? Amen. And through resurrection, Jesus gives us new life and freedom from sin and death which have held us down. 
But Jesus still tells us we need to go with him into his death. That we need to lose our lives so that we will have life with him. That we need to give of ourselves and serve others so that we will have life with him. There is new life, but first there is death for all of us. There is the empty tomb, but first there is the cross. And if we are trying to follow Jesus without the cross, we are not following him. We are going where we want to go. Jesus, can I just skip the cross and go straight to resurrection? I like that part. There is no new life without death. There is no new life without death. There is no empty tomb without the cross. This is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. For this reason. If we are willing to go with Jesus to the cross, there is new life. But if we don't, we will miss the life that Jesus has for us. I don't want to be any of those people in the stories that we read today except for one. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your son Jesus who came and lived. He lived an extraordinary life. Who taught and said amazing things. Who healed and touched those who were broken and hurt. who came and went to the cross. God, you call us to follow you in the same way, to give our lives over to you. And God, we want new life. We want resurrection. We want the empowerment of the empty tomb. But God, we are not willing to go through death first. I pray that this week as we journey with you that you will help us understand how we need to die that God, when we come back together, we can celebrate the life you give us. For it is only through dying that we experience that life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.